You're listening to Decisive Point. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. I'm talking with Luke P. Balaki today, author of The Strategic Importance of Taiwan to the United States and its Allies, Part 2, which was published in the autumn 2023 issue of Parameters. Balaki served in senior and senior executive positions throughout his government career and is now an associate professor of practice at the National Defense University, where he teaches strategy and a China elective at the Joint Advanced Warfighting School. Welcome back to Decisive Point, Luke. Thank you, Stephanie. Your previous episode, part one of the strategic importance of Taiwan to the United States and its allies, covered Taiwan's geopolitical location and commercial importance, pointed to the island as a beacon of democracy, and addressed the issue of credibility among U.S. allies. Part two reviews the development of U.S. and allied policy statements about Taiwan from the invasion of Ukraine to the present. What is the U.S. one-China policy, and why does it matter today? One China policy is often seen as very confusing. And I think that's mainly because of the nomenclature involved and the context in which it was formulated has changed. The White House often says our one China policy. And I think that's often confusing because it sounds like our being the US and the PRC, the People's Republic, have a one China policy. Well, in fact, People's Republic uses the term one China principle because it's slightly different. So it's better to think of the policy as a US policy. What China really meant when it was formulated was there was wide agreement that there would not be an East and West China or or North, South China. Uh, We have with Korea and East, West Germany, there was only going to be one China. To understand this, you have to understand the historical context dating back to the end of World War II. When the Japanese surrendered, they agreed to leave the island of Taiwan, which they had held for many decades. Around the same time, right after the Japanese surrender, China erupted into a civil war between communist forces and the Republic of China, which had been our allies during World War II. Long story short, the Republic of China had to retreat their remaining forces to the island of Taiwan, and they've been there ever since for the last 70 plus years. And so there was this sense of a divided government because the Republic of China was the one government that most countries had recognized as the legitimate government of China. And the communist government wasn't even represented at the UN. In 1972, President Nixon noticed that the communist Chinese did not get along with the Soviet Union and decided to go visit Beijing and take advantage of the situation and use China as a fault against the Soviet Union, which was seen as a greater threat. It wasn't until 1979 when Jimmy Carter, President Carter, decided to recognize it diplomatically and to break relations with a government on Taiwan, the Republic of China, and abrogate our mutual defense treaty with the ROC. These actions resulted in something called joint communiques. There are three of them over three administrations. All of them basically say that there's only one China. One of them says that basically we recognize the communist government as the one legal government of China. But they all say that the U.S. only acknowledges the Chinese position that Taiwan is part of China. When the Japanese had left and surrendered, they simply left and didn't decide whose sovereignty that Taiwan was going to go to. In fact, the San Francisco Peace Treaty also says that Taiwan's status is undetermined. So this adds another layer of complexity and confusion as to who really has sovereign control over Taiwan. Of course, the People's Republic is insistent that Taiwan is part of China. Over time, things have changed on Taiwan. 
Originally in 1949, when the RSC government moved over with its troops and a number of refugees, they held Taiwan under martial law. It wasn't until 1987 when they ended martial law and held a few years later direct elections for their government. And since then, it's become a very vibrant democracy. And in fact, Taiwan has elected two presidents in four elections who come from a party that advocates for the independence of Taiwan from any other entity. If you look at the dynamics of what's happened on Taiwan, most people, when you look at polling, it's pretty consistent that very few on Taiwan actually consider themselves only Chinese. Around 30% might see themselves as both Chinese and Taiwanese, but the biggest number just consider themselves to be Taiwanese, a very separate identity from China at all. That is kind of the context in which the One China policy has changed since it was first formulated. You also have to consider that the whole basis for the Nixon visit in 1972 to try to serve as a bulk against the Soviet Union has changed completely. There is no Soviet Union anymore. And in fact, China and Russia have grown much closer. The context for all this has changed. And I think some of the nomenclature makes uh, one China policy pretty confusing. And I also wrote an article in Campaigning Journal, which you can find online, that tries to explain more. How has the Russia-Ukraine war affected the Taiwan Straits situation? Well, the Russia-Ukraine war certainly put a context around Taiwan in a couple of ways. The U.S. and a lot of countries in the world are concerned that the People's Republic of China wants desperately to control Taiwan. I do the same thing that Russia did to Ukraine and just take advantage and try and take it over. This is especially so because they may be thinking that the world's attention is on Ukraine. All the resources and munitions are going over there and China might just try to take advantage of the situation. The world is concerned about this because Taiwan's economy is about four times the size of Ukraine. It is situated, as I explained in part one of my article, in a major thoroughfare for commercial shipping. In fact, the Director of National Intelligence, Admiral Haynes, testified recently that any kind of blockade or invasion scenario with Taiwan would cost the world economy at least a trillion dollars a year. And this is coming off the heels of our mass disruption in the world economy with COVID and with the Russia-Ukraine war, causing all sorts of supply issues and economic turmoil. It's also seen by the Biden administration as casting the world into two camps, into democratic versus authoritarian camps. And this is certainly discussed in statements in the national security strategy. I also will point out that the Biden administration has held two democracy summits in which all democratic countries were invited, and they included Taiwan. Increasingly, I think people are seeing the world being divided into these two camps and the danger of having democracies picked off one by one by the authoritarian powers. My article does go over the latest national security strategy, which does reflect how the Russian-Ukraine war has put Taiwan into context. In the interim national security strategy early in the Biden administration, Taiwan is just mentioned once in a non-concerned way. This latest one is mentioned seven times in more stern words. It says, quote, we will support Taiwan, end quote. It does call for Europe to play a very active role in the Taiwan question, which they've never asked for before. And thirdly, it states that we, the U.S., will uphold our commitments and our capacity to resist any resort to force on the Taiwan question. These are all statements that are much stronger than you've seen in past national security strategies. And I, I do a comparison in my article on these statements and these strategies, and you can see that it is far stronger. And then layer on top of that, President Biden has said four times that we have a commitment to defend Taiwan. People at first thought this was a gaffe. 
But when a president says it four times in increasingly stronger language, you have to wonder what's behind it. I have to point out that actually President George W. Bush said something to the same effect and was criticized for having a gap. What it said so often, you have to wonder what's behind it. Like I mentioned before, we abrogated our mutual defense treaty with Taiwan, so there isn't any kind of formal agreement, but there might be something else behind all this. The Chinese Communist Party mentioned Taiwan several times in its October 2022 National Congress. Has anything changed from China's perspective? Actually, I did an uh, analysis of both the October 22 Chinese Communist National Congress and the previous one. And when compared to the previous one, this latest report sounds much more exasperated when it comes to Taiwan. In the previous Congress, it was much more, we need to safeguard peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait, and force as a method of unification with Taiwan was never mentioned. They just tried to offer a one country, two systems solution, which is what they offered to Hong Kong. Of course, people in Taiwan see what was, what's going on in Hong Kong, and no thank you, dispersion of democracy demonstrators and so forth, and nothing that the people in Taiwan seem to be interested in. The latest Congress seems much more exasperated. It talks about aiming at separatist activities, people who are advocating into Taiwan independence. They will never renounce the use of force as a method to gain Taiwan, and, quote, we will reserve the option of taking all measures necessary. On top of that, President Xi Jinping has ordered his military to be prepared and capable to ensure invasion of Taiwan by 2027. He has also stated quite clearly that he would never promise to give up the use of force to take Taiwan. So I think the tone and seriousness in which China is taking the situation, as well as their U.S. reaction, has been quite elevated since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Where do Taiwan's regional allies and Europe stand on Taiwan's relationship to China? Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan in August 22 really reflects the attitude that uh, regional allies and European allies have towards the Taiwan situation. They, they've made very clear statements that they don't want any change in the status quo, meaning that Taiwan should remain a de facto independent nation. This was just exasperated by China's very militaristic response to Speaker Pelosi's trip, which included several missiles being shot over Taiwan and the conduct of a sort of mock blockade. As I mentioned before, any kind of blockade, any kind of slowing down of shipping in this very busy shipping lane, which Bloomberg says is 80% of the heaviest container ships in the world, would have very serious economic consequences and disrupt the supply chain going back months and months. Instead of China encouraging other countries to actually back off on the Taiwan question every time they shoot missiles and conduct military exercises, they seem to have this totally opposite reaction, both by the people in Taiwan and by other nations. In fact, after Speaker Pelosi's trip, a number of European countries sent legislative embassies to Taiwan, and Speaker McCarthy met the president of Taiwan in California earlier this year. So the reaction is certainly not what China intended by conducting all the military sword waving. What are your recommendations then? My recommendations are really to look at the situation right now and provide perhaps some incremental but realistic recommendations for understanding the current dynamic of the region and fashioning responses to deter further authoritarian aggression. 
What I've really said we should do is expand our quasi-diplomatic agreements to Taiwan, including our basic de facto embassy arrangements to include arms sales agreements that have exercise level interoperability and joint force coordination, blockade and invasion type scenarios. I think we need to set out sales agreement terms when we sell arms to Taiwan to include military to military protocol for these newly acquired arms. I also think that as the Biden administration has demonstrated with their democracy summits, that the U.S. has to really start thinking about how to include Taiwan into organizations that require statehood or to recast those organizations and to admit that requirement. I mean, they can have observer status or regional status, something of that nature. May even consider expanding that democracy summit into something that's more formal going forward if there is this democracy versus authoritarian dynamic in global affairs now, there needs to be something more formalized so that Taiwan can take part in it. And I do recommend that our staff colleges include more familiarization to Taiwan to take more military students from Taiwan. Our allies, Japan and so forth, really need to walk the walk as well. They need to start doing the same things I just described for the U.S. They're very concerned about the situation in Taiwan, but then they're very hands-off when it comes to actually having more military-to-military exchanges and understanding. And lastly, I recommend that European allies and partners should play an active role, as requested in the national security strategy, doing the same sorts of things that the U.S. has already started to do in military exchanges with Taiwan. Taiwan, for its most part, must consider extending its reserve capability training for civilians. And they might learn from NATO's newest membership applicant, Sweden, which has taught civil defense for years. They may learn from authoritarianism, such as South Korea and Ukraine, and how to bolster its reserve components. And in general, it has to demonstrate absolute resolve if it wishes to deter conflict. Now, all these recommendations are meant to avoid conflict and shake up a strong deterrence posture. Listeners, you can read the article which goes into much greater detail than we covered here, at press.armywarcollege.edu slash parameters. Look for Volume 53, Issue 3. Luke, what a pleasure talking with you again. Thank you for making time to speak with me today. Thank you so much, Stephanie. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform. 